0: Welcome to Weird Studies, this is JF. First, a quick announcement. The musical cue in this episode is an excerpt from Pierre-Yves Martel's upcoming collection of Viola de Gamba compositions, Mer Bleu. Pierre-Yves writes all the music for Weird Studies, so we're proud to get the word out on this amazing new project. Mer Bleu comes out May 1st. Please visit Pierre-Yves' Bandcamp page to download it. The link is in the show notes. Vanessa Onwumezi's debut collection, Dark Neighborhood, contains seven short works of poetic fiction that are unlike any I've read before. In these stories, Onwumezi pulls off a rare feat. By embracing a hard, unflinching realism, cold as the Medusa's gaze, she opens the reader to the phantasmal, often nightmarish depths of human existence. At the same time, her stories contain scenes of such humanity and tenderness that I felt, powerfully, the true indomitability of hope and love. Rarely have the human and the inhuman danced so intimately with one another as they do in these strange tales, to use Robert Aikman's appellation. For this episode, we chose to focus on the title story. Dark Neighborhood is set in a vast encampment, one might say a refugee camp, only the border these refugees are hoping to cross isn't a political one. Its high wall lined with floodlights and single gigantic gate notwithstanding, it is a border between worlds. Quote, The gate is painted black. Steel is the metal most likely. In sheets bolted flush, layers of paint flake away to reveal yet more layers of black. We stand most of the time facing the gate, and we sleep with our heads towards the gate, always looking ahead at the gate, closed. End quote. What lies on the other side of the gate is literally and figuratively beyond us. All that the narrator and the thousands of others know is their hope. Their hope that the beyond will be better than the here and now. As Phil says in the conversation that follows, Dark Neighborhood will no doubt find a place in the most selective canons of weird literature. It is a story that invites and resists interpretation. A dream of darkness and light, to which the only proper hermeneutic response is a kind of aesthetic surrender, a lingering, a waiting. We hope the episode will inspire you to get a copy of Anwu book from Fitzcarraldo Editions, if you haven't already. We also hope it'll inspire those of you who are still out there waiting at the foot of that other black gate, the Weird Studies Patreon Gate, to cross over. Unlike the gate in Anwu story, this one is always open. Admittance can be as cheap as one American dollar a month. And don't be intimidated by the darkness beyond. It's nice here, we promise. Our light may be different from the light you're used to, but your eyes will adjust. As we read in the epigraph to Anguumezi's book, courtesy of top tier patron Zarathustra, night is also a sun. So come, gather your meager handful of coins and step through. We are waiting.
1: tell the people what happened
0: (laughs) uh yes i will um so last week we recorded an episode that we were very proud of conversation that went swimmingly and um afterwards i realized that my zoom h5 recorder which i had lent to my brother so he could record some modular synth pieces he was working on while he was in ottawa i realized that the settings had been changed and um i was capturing sound via two inputs with no mics in them. And so when I finally sat down on Monday and I'd I'd set up the project, I had everything lined up. I realized that the waveforms weren't showing up. There was no sound at all on my track, nothing. So (laughs) we had a one-sided conversation, (laughs) literally.
1: So here we are. So we're doing it again. We're doing it again and we'll do it better. I'm confident. Suffice it to say, I am embracing this as a creative challenge. And I can think of nothing I would rather take a flyer on, uh, a bold shot in the dark, trying something new, than with the story that we're talking about today, Dark Neighborhood. Vanessa Onwamese is a relatively young, younger than us at any rate. Oh, yeah. Um, well, that's not saying much, <laughs> but a uh, relatively young fiction writer in the UK. I believe she lives in London and her first volume of short stories dark neighborhood is published by fitz editions in a beautiful uniform blue-backed edition when i say uniform i mean like when you look at fitz editions they all kind of look the same sort of they all have that gorgeous blue paper cover with a simple dignified typeface on the front and you said and i remember this in our earlier recording that you love that kind of publication Uh, French publishers often go for that uniform look, Yeah, almost as if the publications are journals in a series, like in a serial publication. Yeah, I never thought of it that way. But yeah, I love that. Gallimard does that. I um, believe Olympia Press. Yeah. But in any event, I'm getting a little bit off track here, focusing (laughs) on the minutiae of the actual physical book. But um, I do like a book that feels good in the hand, that is enjoyable to slip in a pocket and take around with you. Yes. And if you were looking, dear listener, for just such a book, I can recommend no book more highly than Dark Neighborhood.
0: Not only for its design, because of the content. (laughs) <laughs> yes. I, no,
1: really, the only reason to buy a book is for the cover. This is I'm the kind
0: to, of book you you want to be seen reading this book on a bus. Just how gorgeous the edition is. You don't, you
1: know. I think yeah. somebody sees you on the subway <laughs> reading this. They're going to think there is a potential life partner. Yeah. Um, no, this is a gorgeous collection of stories, each one a little lapidary piece of poetic prose. It's for one thing a kind of writing that really hangs out on a kind of border between poetry and prose. Oh yes. It's almost this is a maybe a funny and non-resonant for most listeners analogy, but it reminds me a little bit of opera, the way in opera the characteristic movement is between thinning and thickening. The thinning is where the amount of intensely musical material dries up a little bit in preference to the story. So when the story starts moving, people's singing becomes a bit more speech-like and the instrumental accompaniment tends to thin out a little bit. And then in moments of more intense emotion, it's as if the music thickens around those points. The action slows and the emotions of the character become more intensely expressed through the melody and through the Oh, that's the, that's the, good. the accompaniment And there's a similar kind of waxing and waning in these stories where there are moments of poetry that burst out in song. Mm. And what I'm not saying is that this is a kind of writing that's really flowery, but rather that it manages this kind of floating point, this wonderful kind of movement between poetry and prose that is, for me, very special.
0: Oh, I totally agree and we're we're focusing on the first short story in the collection which gives the collection its title dark neighborhood mm-hmm. so and the story dark neighborhood is a wonderful reimagining of certain science fiction tropes it's essentially a kind of science fiction story but extremely potent symbolically and with amazing imaginal depths and we just thought that it was i mean just the perfect weird studies topic mm-hmm. for all kinds of reasons So I'm going to start by asking you the question that I opened with last time. And you can tell me, Mm -hmm. you know, we'll see where it goes. So in a post-apocalyptic world, you know, imagine everything collapses. How do you think you would personally fare? And I ask you because I have a, I know someone who is uh, what you would call a prepper. This guy is Mm -hmm. ready. He, we used to hang out a lot at the park when our kids were playing. Uh, We're younger and, and we talk about this and I, my position was always that once that happens, I'll just be one of the dead. I'll just be one of the people in the back, one of the extras you just see dying in the background. Um, <laughs> you know, like Icarus falling in the, the distant background of uh, that Bruegel painting. You ever seen that
1: one? Uh, I don't know. It's, um, I mean, I know the kind of thing you're talking about. Actually, the thing I'm imagining, there's a Hieronymus Bosch altarpiece or something that I saw a reproduction of. You know how there's always a lot of little figures yeah. in the foreground, middle ground, background of a Bosch painting? And in this one, way in the background, it shows somebody being torn apart by wolves yeah. on a path <laughs> in, the, in the wilderness. Yeah, exactly. I would be that guy. I'd be that guy <laughs> off in the background being torn apart by wolves.
0: Okay, so that's your answer. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. this is essentially a kind of post-apocalyptic narrative. But one that really just grabs you by the hair and just like rubs your face in the dirt and mud of how real such a situation would feel were you actually in it. You get the feeling that it's set in a kind of imaginal uh, iteration of of like a a real world refugee camp, right? Um, Mm, You get that that sense of deep, dirty realism in it. Um, Yeah, dirty. But from there, it also flies off into these fantastical heights anyways so how so you don't think you'd do too well
1: well and as i said the first time we recorded this i have some experience with how i would do with prepping back in y2k 23 years ago uh for those of you who weren't around then there was briefly a flap well over a year there was a fairly sustained flap about a peculiarity of old I think Windows computers, like computers running Windows, that there's an internal clock that governed all of its operations. And that clock apparently had been designed without the realization that one of these days we would get to the year 2000 and the first two numbers of the four-digit year number would flip. And so this was forecast to cause all kinds of problems and this was it was a long time ago but even then that was the beginning of ubiquitous computing where computing is embedded in fucking everything now even things like clothes yeah and so everybody was worried that come y2k the year 2000 when all the clocks turned over you know airplanes would fall out of the sky that sort of thing and and that basically all civic infrastructure would dissolve and we would be reduced to the level of subsistence living. This should give us just, you know,
0: reason to maybe just take some some ideas circulating today with a a little bit of a grain of salt, because this was taken extremely seriously. I was working in the National Archives at the time. And I remember we all had to get our computers prepped for this. So you'd get a little sticker Mm -hmm. saying your computer was Y2K ready. And I am convinced that those guys, the programmers who came in to do this, were doing literally nothing to your computer. They were just basically putting a sticker on it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's a good hustle. Nice work if you can get it. (laughs) Yeah, But anyways, you you got a little nervous about it last minute, right? Well, you know, I was just not paying attention to it but there was someone in my life who was kind of beating the drum pretty steadily like gave me a book on the subject and like how you know this is the most serious shit ever and if you're not ready you're an idiot you got to prep and i uh, it got to me like one afternoon i flipped out for one afternoon i was like oh my god and at, I, and i went out to the grocery store and bought canned goods but i the canned goods it was for one thing, pathetically inadequate, it wouldn't have helped for more than a day or two. And for another thing, also, I, I just randomly grabbed cans. Like, and so like years later, we were moving house and Helen's like, what's up with all these cans of apricots? Why do we have these? Of all things, that was what I felt I had to grab, canned apricots. I don't even eat apricots. I don't like them.
0: Neither do I. They're incredibly gas-inducing. I've found, which is of questionable
1: utility in the apocalypse, right?
0: <laughs> Recently, uh, Leslie and I started watching that show that the, the current big HBO hit, Last of Us. And I don't really like the Last, the Last of Us, but I do love the sequences where you see our world abandoned, you mm. know, our world vacated. Hmm. I love that type of thing. Actually, um, I'm
1: with you on that. I dig that.
0: Yeah, but usually, you know, they they'll, they'll kind of just gesture at that and then move on and just ruin their own work with plot. As we've <laughs> <mentioned> before, <point.
1: laughs> that's true. And I will say this about Dark Neighborhood: it's not ruined by a whole lot of plottiness. No, I mean, I mean there no. is a story, but it's not. There's a story, but it ain't plot. To return to that distinction from our Spirited Away episode. It's not, but I do love the aesthetics of
0: an abandoned world, a world in which you still have commodities, but you have no means of production. Yes. That's a curious thing. So,
1: yeah, like
0: if if yeah, like uh, you read uh, Marx's writings on the commodity, really interesting stuff. And he often has to resort to religious or even occult language to really get to the heart of what he's trying to communicate in Capital. And one of the things he says is that the commodity, he, he, ta- he has a little section about commodity fetishism. And he's like the commodity functions as a fetish because the labor, the work that went into creating the commodity is somehow absorbed into the commodity such that it exists independently of the actual process of creating it. So it has a kind of mystical character. And what you have in an apocalyptic fiction is the things that we now to us are just regular everyday things. Like the story begins with an inventory of such things. And you read it last time. I'll, I'll just quickly read it this time. One bottle of water, 320 books. 100 packets of cigarettes, 50 lighters, three boxes of toothpicks, a baby bottle, five liters of whiskey, one of gin, 100 of vinegar, six kitchen knives, 90 tampons with applicators, 95 without, a small crate of ginger ale, a box of crispy fried onions, mismatched earrings, rings, bracelets, a love letter, two vials of insulin, five bags of glucose, earplugs, a month's supply of contraceptive pills, a letter of recommendation, Eight bank statements, a lemon zester, 30 hairpins, 10 syringes, a half pint of blood. The idea is that all these objects... A little that,
1: poem in itself,
0: just made exactly, up of objects. Exactly. Exactly. These objects that kind of float in the space of kind of a late capitalist existence are now suddenly imbued with the magic of their being now impossible to produce. They are the last of their kind, so to speak. And so they gain all the mystical power that we occlude in our everyday
1: experience of consumer capitalism. They are emanations from a dead star.
0: Oh, I love that. That's exactly it. Yeah, exactly. And strangely, like that's actually a very appropriate analogy considering the actual dark
1: neighborhoods that we'll talk about eventually, but let's not go uh, there right now. Yeah, true. I hadn't even thought of that. This brings up a concept that was much in the air at the end of the 1960s in the American counterculture particularly in the Californian counterculture. I wrote a book about countercultures, and there's an awful lot of research and thinking that didn't make it into the book. One thing I would have written about just out of sheer delight in the topic was the notion of post-scarcity anarchism. It's associated with an anarchist writer named Murray Bookchin. He wrote a book on the subject, but by no means was he the only person to think about this. This was an idea among counterculturalists, hippies and whatnot, that. The problem with the world is this kind of rampant consumerism and out-of-control production, this sort of mindless automatic production, overproduction, filling the world with junk, garbage piling up to the heavens. The idea was like, what if we just stopped doing all that? You know, there's an old expression. What if they gave a war and nobody came? That was common in the Vietnam era. What if we had a civilization and nobody came? Nobody showed up for work anymore. Nobody gave a fuck about getting things and spending and, you know, competitive games of status through accumulation of goods. What would happen? And the idea is sort of like, well, we could just feast off the corpse of a dead capitalist civilization, and the idea sounds ludicrous. I think for many people now. I remember thinking it was ludicrous until I moved to California for a couple of years and living in the Bay Area, and the like. It's so lush and fertile and mild. You could live in such a place. I realized and form the idea that you could scavenge on the remains of the old world and build a new one. Mm. In fact, uh, some of the stuff I talk about in Taboo, Time and Belief in Exotica, which we did a whole show on, the long epigraph that I believe I read in that from Fight Club by Chuck Pluniac, which is just imagining people like, you know, making venison on an abandoned superhighway You know, you wear a suit of leather clothes that is your only possession and it will last you a lifetime. You will climb vines on the World Trade Center, et cetera, et cetera. This kind of anarcho-primitivist vision of the future in which fragments of our technologized present are embedded like shards. Yeah. And there is something seductive and beautiful about that. That is the social ideal that informs the film Woodstock, the documentary film about the 1969 Woodstock Music Festival, which is a much more utopian vision of something we see in Dark Neighborhood. Mm -hmm. But um, all this is to say that, you know, this is an idea that has a certain kind of history. And it's interesting to find its dark echo in this book. Oh, also Dahlgren. Dahlgren also strongly informed by ideas of post-scarcity anarchism. But these ideas are prevalent enough in the age of the high counterculture that it's become a trope, perhaps, something that is in our narrative DNA in the early 21st century. And it resurfaces here in a distinctly weird form. Absolutely. In a kind of consummate form, I'd say. Yes.
0: So what is the story briefly? Um, The setting is central. Imagine a gate, a gate that is made of a thick metal, black painted on black, right? At one point, she's describing how this gate,
1: the black paint is peeling to reveal more black beneath. Solid slabs of metal riveted and welded in an impenetrable barrier. Right. And
0: it's just there. In an area that formerly, before the story begins, was wooded. There were trees. Uh, There are no more trees. People have cut them down and used them. So you have this gate. And in front of this gate, you have this mass of people living in absolute squalor. And it extends to the horizon. This line of people, it's both a line, but I think it's kind of, I think of it as expanding like in a V shape from Mm -hmm. the gate, like this gigantic mass of people just gathered in front of this gate which they all expect will open and let them through at some point, let them through to enter what we don't know, another world. And occasionally the gate opens, discreetly, we're told, and people at the front of the line disappear. They go through and then slowly the, the line moves forward. And this has been going on for God knows how long. I get the sense it's like a couple of years,
1: maybe, or maybe several months. I'm not sure. Can I read an excerpt? Yeah, absolutely. At this point, so there is a brief kind of prehistory of this story. This bit starts on page 19. This is incidentally coming right after a passage that I know we will want to return to, an important passage. Not only is there a metal gate and a wall that is seemingly impassable, because apparently nobody gets the idea of trying to climb up over it, There are also floodlights mounted on top of the wall, and the floodlights are of extreme intensity, and they're on 24-7. There are floodlights high above us, illuminated both day and night, erase the moon, intensifying the sun. No child born here will ever know the moon waxing, or its smile that wanes to a slither of silver, new moon, the cold half-moon. To live in a world filled with light is like being slowly erased, no longer knowing down or up, yes or no day or a true night, light upon light is darkness. That's a kind of remarkable passage right there. Uh The light upon light is darkness. I know we're going to want to return to that.
0: Let's bookmark that. Yeah.
1: Yes. But right after that, he starts reminiscing about where and when the gate showed up. Well, we don't get a sense of where. We're never told, you know, what country we're in or whatever. He here is the narrator. It's a first person narrative. And there's no name. So we'll just yeah, call one, him yeah, the narrator. Right. Yeah. Correct. First time I heard the gate speak, human voice crackling through speaker system. It seemed genuine as we wrapped our fists on metal door of it. It that had appeared this day I mentioned, blocking our path on a cold walk home. I have a good friend in your position, it said. Nobody should have to go through what you're going through, it said. We take your concerns very seriously. No, I should pause to point out that this is something the gate does. Every now and then, a loud voice emerges from speakers mounted on the gate with utterances, various mysterious and disconnected utterances, cryptic utterances. But uh, in any event, and these are the very first of those utterances, I asked it to be specific Who is this friend? And what happens to them next? Shouting in the direction of the speaker. Okay, I'm going to jump over a little bit. He talks about meeting somebody who says we should be reasonable and wait. I had no words for the dense feeling in my stomach. It didn't deserve expression just then. I decided to sit and rest in place amongst a crowd of people trapped on the path that came to be known as the way through. And we remained reasonable people as the next hundred, then thousand people bedded down in the following nights, as the first trees were felled for firewood, the first tooth was pulled, a baby was born, gunshot fired. Yes, is my answer to all that, and still a yes, I rest in place, bathed in the hellish acid lemonade. Watching my head roll over the moving sky, in this eternal waiting room, only one magazine to be found. Our salvation on the other side of the gate seems assured, We hear long cries of bliss from over there that say, hold on, just a few days more.
0: And uh, just to compliment that wonderful passage, there is that line that we made much of last time there. This is a little earlier in the narrative. In the beginning, we checked our phones constantly. So Mm. he's remembering the early days. We checked our phones constantly, of course, for the time, for the news. But batteries die, and one by one, the lights go out. One by one, you care none more about time. Take in the sun and try to forget that your life Has become a waiting and you realize That your life was always a waiting And uh, This theme this idea of waiting Waiting for what Waiting for the miracle to come Is Leonard Cohen that's a wonderful song By Leonard Cohen I love that song Waiting for um I sounded like Trump There it's the best song uh, <laughs> Yes yeah, so you sounded exactly <laughs> like Trump It was it's most just alarming <laughs> Although I'm not sure Trump is much of a Cohen fan, but maybe, who knows. So uh, the idea of of this is a story about waiting, it extends or expands waiting into its own kind of substance. Whereas waiting is usually seen as an interstitial state. Now waiting is the ontological state uh, in which all the story develops, right?
1: It's as if you imagine some kind of waste time. We talked about this too, the idea that we conceive of such time as waste unproductive time, time that's not given over to a productive activity, but in preparation for being given over to a productive activity. So this idea of expanding that little bit of waste time into all of time, as if in waiting in line at the grocery store somehow became the totality of your life. That's one of the things that this story is playing with.
0: Yeah, exactly. A kind of purgatorial time where you're just waiting to get to the next bit, It reminded me of um, the opening of Eslin's book, Theater of the Absurd, which is about, in part, about Samuel Beckett and UNESCO and uh, Jean Genet, you know, the kind of early 20th, mid 20th century theater of the absurd. And Eslin begins his book, The Introduction, with an account of a presentation of Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot, which is certainly similarly about waiting. A production of the play that took place in a high security prison in the U.S., the San Quentin Penitentiary. So no live play had been performed at San Quentin since Sarah Bernhardt appeared there in 1913. Now, 44 years later, he writes, the play that had been chosen, largely because no woman appeared in it, was Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot. I'll just keep reading what Eslin writes because it's Please. interesting. No wonder the actors and Herbert Blau, the director, were apprehensive. How were they to face one of the toughest audiences in the world with a highly obscure intellectual play that had produced near riots among a good many highly sophisticated audiences in Western Europe? Herbert Blau decided to prepare the San Quentin audience for what was to come. He stepped onto the stage and addressed the packed, darkened North Dining Hall, a sea of flickering matches that the convicts tossed over their shoulders after lighting their cigarettes. Blau compared the play to a piece of jazz music, quote, to which one must listen for whatever one may find in it, end quote. In the same way, he hoped there would be some meaning, some personal significance for each member of the audience in Waiting for Godot. The curtain parted, the play began, and what had bewildered the sophisticated audiences of Paris, London, and New York was immediately grasped by an audience of convicts, as the writer of Memos for a First Nighter put it in the columns of the prison paper, the San Quentin News, quote, The trio of muscle men, biceps overflowing, parked all 642 pounds on the aisle and waited for the girls and funny stuff. When this didn't appear, they audibly fumed and audibly decided to wait until the house lights dimmed before escaping. They made one error. They listened and looked two minutes too long and stayed, left at the end, all shook. Excellent. And I just love that the appropriate, the ideal audience for this high modernist, you know, uh, experimental play were the convicts at the San Quentin Penitentiary who knew all too well what it means to live in awaiting, to know that your life is awaiting. And I feel that she's capturing that affect here, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. What is such a life? Well, I mean, the life that onwamezi imagines seems, I mean, I've never been in prison, thank fucking God. Uh, I don't <laughs> think I would last a day. But it seems to me that what she is imagining is very much the very hard-edged world of prison. There are so many ways that what is tenderest and most Delicate in the human soul is just trampled underfoot. And not even necessarily out of an excess of cruelty, but just staying alive. The brutal, raw business of subsistence. And
0: each person then has to find their means of subsistence. How are they gonna thrive? Right. No, not thrive, but survive in this environment. And the narrator is one of the like the winners, right? Yes. He has a knack for trade. Uh, He has a knack for trade. Exactly. And he's, he pulled the, uh, what's that trick? The guy who started with a lead pencil and ended up with a house, you know, that thing where he traded the pencil for a pen and then the pen for a bobby pin or something. I don't
1: know what it was. And 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 Until you end up with this empire of stuff.
0: Yeah. Well, you're always have, it's just one thing because you're trading the one thing for the next, but eventually you've accumulated enough value that you can actually trade, I don't know, the latest thing you got for a house. And so this one guy bought a house with a pencil. That's the urban myth. But um, he's done that and he's accumulated a mountain of, of stuff. And he, he has a kind of store, him and his partner, Gigi, who is also maybe his girlfriend. He seems, they seem to be a couple, although maybe there's very little time for romance in this world. Hmm. Um, so imagine at the center of this, this squalor, these uh, makeshift little shelters with people living in absolute filth. There's this store, this kind of uh, this area where you can actually trade to obtain the necessities of life, and the narrator is in charge of this place. And he and, his, and Gigi, his partner, are dealing with thieves. They think somebody's pilfering stuff when they're not looking, and so they have a gun and they have to guard their store. And that's the center of much of the action, is yeah. like, how is he going to protect his mountain of junk, which yes. is like
1: priceless in this world? Uh, there's another great passage. This is on page 17. I amassed objects and traded them for things others would give up in exchange for something they wanted more. I have a talent for understanding value. To feel safe, for example, much value in that. Such a feeling could be sold with anything. The brass knuckles or some bullshit crystals. A newspaper, very common, with a crossword, even better. I once traded back a grandmother's necklace to a girl who had lost a tooth after she parted with it. Bad luck, so she said, or so she believed. And she'd rather have had the necklace to eating that day, that week, so I ate. That's brutal. That's a little study in brutality right there. She'd rather have had the necklace to eating that day, that week, so I ate. So in other words, what profits him is someone else's humanity. Yeah. That this is a little bit of humanity. She tried to part with grandmother's necklace. Can you think of an object... Even just without knowing the story of that object, just the words grandmother's necklace. Can you think of an object more charged with sentiment, with the comforts of a world now lost? Obviously, this is something that makes humans human is our ability to care about things like that, that don't have that kind of material Mm -hmm. payoff. Right. Things like art or love, all of these things that are hunted to extinction in the neoliberal age, all those things that don't have a readily identifiable cash value, where even attempting to find a cash value demeans them. But fuck it, in this world, if you have such a sentiment in your heart that there is an intangible value to grandmother's necklace, that works out well for me. Your sentimentality means food in my belly. And there is something very harsh and Darwinian about that.
0: But, you know, he is near the front of the line, doing quite well, all things considered, in this world. Yeah. And it's through this kind of like hard, uh, hyper-masculine self-reliance, right? That's Mm. what allows him to thrive.
1: Yeah. I will point out in in passing, by the way, something you said in our earlier recording, which I think is quite true and worth mentioning. Unwo Macy is very good at writing men. She is. Uh, not just in this story. I was really moved by that, reading the
0: various stories in this book. Right. Um, yeah. how her deep, deep sense of empathy with all kinds of people is really something. It's yeah. a, a capacity to inhabit other selves. So he's got this heap of junk, and uh, the story, the, the plot, so to speak, starts when his old friend Stevie shows up, saying he lost a ring. And um, he needs this ring to give to his fiance because, you know, he's fallen in love. He's somewhere else in the camp, but he comes over and he's like, I've lost my ring and I'm wondering if it's turned up in your stuff. But of course, the narrator knows full well that this is a lie that
1: Stevie's just trying to get a ring for free, but he plays along. Stevie is obviously working an angle. He's like, oh yeah, I lost my ring. Maybe you have it, which is on its own plausible because- as uh, the narrator says most things that people lose eventually end up in his storeroom but he figures out really quickly that stevie never lost a ring Mm -hmm. he's bullshitting he just doesn't have enough to get a ring for his girlfriend so he can marry her and he's trying to work a rather lame hustle and this guy is uh he's not a total animal in fact when Gigi dies sorry splot uh splot Boilers <laughs> plot spoiler spoiler <laughs> um it just occurred to me you can rhyme plot spoiler and pot boiler boiler plot when i um eventually uh launch my rap career i will make use of that knowledge <laughs> exactly but on uh, your little notebook yeah yeah but right. this guy is you know actually his humanity comes out when Gigi dies with the gun that they use to warn off potential thieves. They don't even know how to use it. They don't understand it. They've never fired it. And then, of course, it's like Chekhov's gun. We're introduced to it like on page two or something, and you Mm -hmm. know that it's going to come into play later. And of course, it does. Gigi is accidentally shot, a glancing flesh wound, but it affects, and she dies of gangrene. And when the narrator is looking for a place to bury her and finds a place to lay her down, a kind of magical place a place that sort of somehow shouldn't exist that is not dirtied and defiled by all the people waiting but a quiet and shaded place he lays her down this is a impressive thing i was rereading this story again and by the way this is a rereadable story necessarily mm. we've had to reread it because we're having to record this episode twice but the story just moves me more deeply each time i read it yeah the way onwamezi writes his walk back to like several kilometers back to his store alone after leaving Gigi is so beautiful and sad Mm -hmm. and so economically and indirectly gives us a sense of cosmic loss to this man. He's not just a cold, heartless man of trade, but at the same time, he is a cold, heartless man of trade. And when his friend Stevie tries to hustle him for the ring, He makes an interesting decision, which is he allows Stevie to pick out a really nice ring and then says, let's go. I need to take a piss. And there's one place in this whole huge area where people can go to pee and poop, and it's just this waste pit that's run by a bunch of sadists that like to see people slip and fall in and muck around in the piss and shit. It's an awful, awful place. Even like animals avoid it. But if you a little detail, if you defecate or urinate in somebody's place where they live, they will probably kill you. So, yeah, however loathsome the waste pit is, that's where everybody goes. And yeah, narrator's like, I got to take a piss. And then (laughs) when Stevie isn't looking, grabs him, shoves his face in the piss and uh, throws the ring in all this muck and leaves him to find it. And so he beats him down. Northern Ontario style. That is what we, when I was a little kid growing up, would call a face wash. Only we did it with snow and ice. This is with urine, which is gross. Well, Um, yellow
0: snow sometimes when you felt real nasty. Oh
1: yeah. No, that's some sadistic shit. But yes, that that has been known to happen. Has been
0: known to happen up in Sudbury, I'm sure.
1: (laughs) 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 Yes. But I, I found that calculation interesting. I'm like, I'll let you have the ring. But I got to beat your ass. That's your payment. Yeah.
0: You're going to pay in, humil- in humiliation.
1: Yeah. yeah. One way or another, you're paying in this world. Yeah. But there is a, at least a little bit of kind. It's like he recognizes, like, well, the guy's in love. What are you going to do? You got to give him a ring. Yeah. And you got to give him a face wash. So just a, a, a realist. Uh, just a... He's very much a realist. Another of, like great little detail of a basement, and there's so many of them, is when it rains. Okay, so there's oh, no yeah. longer any trees because people cut them all down for fuel. And so as a result, obviously erosion problems. Um, at one point, the heavens just open up with a massive deluge. And it reminded me of the part of Woodstock, the film Woodstock, of course, part of the event that Woodstock captured, where similarly, there was an enormous deluge that turned Milgram's bean field into a, a swamp, just a muddy pitch. Yeah. And apparently it was absolutely fucking disgusting and filthy. And there was broken glass all through there. Lots of people got hurt. It was, you know, unsanitary. You don't see that in the dock, though. No, but you hear about <laughs> it from people who were there and, and yeah. reminiscing. And it's very much the same thing. The coming of the rain leads to chaos. And a particularly awful detail is that huge mountain of human feces is observed to be melting like a block of ice in the rain. And all of the human waste that has been roughly contained in this one place, the rain just washes all of this filth into a sludge that covers the entire area. No escape. And narrator is a very practical fellow and immediately he's like, okay, well, we have to secure our stuff. And so he, you know, figures out how to shelter it. And then he wants to make sure that the filth doesn't damage anything valuable. So he's careful to put all the literary books down at the bottom. <laughs> all the literature goes at the bottom. Yeah. Uh, again, a wonderfully observed little detail of the depths of debasement that obtain in this world of waiting. It's a world of waste. Waste time, waste lives.
0: I love that you bring up Woodstock because, well, first of all, formalistically, when I picture this setting, you know, I picture an aerial shot of this camp and the gate. I see formally a kind of music festival, right? With the big stage, the front, and then this huge You showed someone a
1: picture, you'd say, what is this? They'd say, it looks like Woodstock. Exactly. So
0: that's interesting because, you know, the difference between a refugee camp and this place is that people are here. We are made to understand they are here by choice. They're here because of the gate. We don't get the sense that the rest of civilization is collapsed, although, well, you do get that sense, but it's never said. You don't get any sense
1: of that there is a rest of civilization. This is one of the things that's most puzzling and weird about this story is that although they live on the scraps of a gone world, it's never addressed whether that world still exists or not. Or ever really did, yeah, you know? uh,
0: yeah, you know. So it's a, it's a kind of a dreamscape to a certain extent. Oh yeah. But the um, so the squalor and the uh, the fact that they're here by choice, more or less, creates a kind of. Uh, you could compare this. I mean, this is kind of Woodstock on day seventy-two. You know, if it had lasted <laughs> yes, exactly. that long. exactly. You know, so it, there's a it's this feeling of a festival in the narrative, that it is a kind of festival. It, well, I mean, As we were saying, it's a, everyone is in a permanent state of waiting. Everyone's life is a waiting. So in a sense, we could say, well, this narrative describes a state of exception, right? They all feel like they're in this state of exception, but that's precisely what a festival is, right? Often festivals existed on singular days on the calendar, days without a date this is the day of the year that doesn't have a number because it's simply the day of festival, the feast day. And so it's a rift in the calendar. And it seems like they're here in a kind of, there's almost a kind of celebratory component to their life in this place because every once in a while the gate opens and people move forward and move through. And so there's purpose to this world. There's a kind of... um religious dimension to their, what they're doing here. There's oh, a yeah. kind of asceticism
1: of waiting, uh, a, a kind of mystical character to their being there. Do you find that? Oh, that's the crucial thing. And I've been waiting for the conversation to take this turn because, like, why are we talking about this story on an episode of a podcast called Weird Studies? Because I believe firmly that this story is going to become a canonic weird tale. Mm-hmm. I am fully confident. Of predicting that. And what makes it not just a story? I mean, we're talking about things like the history of post-scarcity anarchism and Woodstock and blah, blah, blah. Those are things that actually exist or existed. So what's so weird about this? It's the nature of the thing that people are waiting for, which is enigmatic and mysterious, obviously, but like unknowable. Yeah. It represents the same kind of asymmetry of knowledge of knowability that the UFO phenomenon does. I've been thinking a lot about UFOs lately and thinking about them less in their own terms, although I've been doing plenty of that and more in terms of like what they represent to knowledge, what they do to all existing forms of human knowledge. And something about UFOs is that they set up a highly asymmetrical I don't know if that's the word I want, but it's the first word that occurred to me. A highly asymmetrical state of knowledge. There's a phenomenon. It is observable. It is in no way predictable. You can't make things repeat such that you could test things, which is a basis of scientific method. You are left with scattered indications that are possibly performative, like they're possibly there in order to leave a certain kind of impression or possibly not, we can't know because we are all the way over here on the other side of a gate, an impassable, seemingly impassable gate, or maybe sometimes the gate opens up and lets some people in. So we have something that presents to us little more than the enigma of its very existence.
0: Yeah. And what, do,
1: and what do you do with something like that?
0: It's an index of what in my... Um that essay i wrote on on stranger things their reality's analog it's an index of ontological strangeness as opposed to an epistemic or epistemological yes. strangeness right something that's mm-hmm. epi, something that's epistemol <laughs> something that is epistemologically strange is something that is strange for us for mm-hmm. now if we had more information it would cease to be strange sasquatch sasquatch turns out to be a big ape that lives in the woods of North America, well, once we've captured one, that strangeness disappears. We just have another type of ape. But if Sasquatch Mm -hmm. keeps doing weird things like phasing in and out of material existence or Mm. climbing out of UFOs and Mm. all the other strange things people have observed Sasquatches to do, all the other ways in which the creature remains kind of permanently and inexorably elusive well then we may be facing in the figure of Sasquatch, if only symbolically, if no such thing exists, an index of ontological strangeness, the prospect of living in a reality that is fundamentally in its core simply unknowable, such that all knowledge is relativized in face of this fundamental unknowable kernel of the real. And that's what the gate gives us. Now you could read this story very allegorically, and saying, well, in a sense, she's just describing life in late capitalism. Like, we're all accumulating junk. We all do that to forget the fact that we're all waiting, and what we're waiting for. The gate. Well, the gate is death, and we don't know what lies beyond. And it's, so you can re- you can give a, mm-hmm. I think, a very kind of pregnant and not irrelevant allegorical reading of the text. I don't sure. want to limit it that. But I guess in a sense, you could say the UFO is one more token of that great mystery that is undeniably real insofar as death remains the ultimate horizon that every human being is facing at every moment, whether they know it or not. So the Black Gate, which to me, and you mentioned this last time, and I think it's true, uh, when she describes the, the gate as this big black, almost like basalt gate, I picture the gates of Mordor in uh, yeah. in uh, The Lord of the Rings. but it's a threshold. It is the limen, the limen, limen, the limon, the absolute limit state of the world that these characters inhabit, and so it represents the limit of what they can conceive, the limit of what they can know, and inevitably, by its very unknowability, it becomes the kind of entelechy or strange attractor that qualifies and and defines their existence. Right?
1: Yeah. One little detail of that that I loved the way that the gate. Manifests and expresses the limits of our knowing is in the utterances that it makes from time to time. Oh yeah, love those. So like early on, when Stevie first shows up at the store, the gate suddenly says, um, "Love is the hardest thing to do," and I love the little description of that radio tone, air shake, and a flock of quiet birds, gray striped, strange curled beaks flee from the shrubbery, rough, ugly bark. It's suggesting that everyone gets very quiet when the gate speaks such
0: that you can hear the birds, right? Everyone listens.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Some kind of ridiculous, Stevie says, and looks around like casting judgment on all but unseen fragments of dust. And (laughs) what Stevie goes on to say is like, you know, once that phrase starts going through the crowd by word of mouth... You know, like maybe only the people close to the gate can hear it. People further away hear something garbled, and it becomes like a huge game of telephone as the phrase travels from ear to ear until it reaches the unknowable depths of the waiting crowd. And uh Stevie's like, Yeah, you know, it'll transform out of recognition. And then it does, like as the narrator is walking around, he can hear echoes of the original phrase, love is the hardest thing to do, turns into you should bury your dead. And That itself, like, if you wanted to look at this as an allegory, perhaps it has been given to human beings to receive occasional divine revelations, the burning bush appearing to Moses and whatnot. The history of religions does show us exactly this game of telephone as the words get twisted around and mixed up with other things until it becomes impossible to recapture or feels impossible to recapture that original kernel of meaning. Yes. Yes. And the question is always, is there something there to recapture? Is there a wisdom? Is there a meaning here? First of all, the practical question, can we find out what it is? But even if we are skeptical of that, was there ever anything there to begin with? And this is the UFO enigma as well. Is there something really there? Yeah. A meaning at the heart of this phenomenon? Sorry, dude. You were going I'm to
0: reminded say of... No, no. I'm reminded of... Uh... I've just found out that this is not actually Charles Fort, but uh, someone who wrote a book about Charles Fort early on and kind of encapsulated Fort's thought in this sentence, but it it has since been attributed to Fort. Perhaps there is a universal mind, but must it be sane? Oh, that's John Keel. Now, John Keel is quoting Fort in his book. Oh, but it, if, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, okay. But, if, I get it. but then Sorry. I did some research and Fort never yeah. said that. Okay. So it's, it's, it's a perfect example of what we're oh, talking yeah. <laughs> about. <laughs> That's true. Oh my God. So oh. in, in this story, our narrator is quite close to the gate. So he can hear, at least, you know, yeah. from what we can see, he can hear what the gate is saying. But what the gate is saying is inscrutable. Yeah. The first thing it ever says to him, you read it earlier, is I have a good friend in your position. Nobody should have to go through what you're going through. We take your concerns very seriously. So it starts in the first person. I have a good friend. Who? Who is this talking to me through the gate? Yeah. And and we take your concerns very seriously, which is a a classic. Yeah. It sounds like a
1: corporation suddenly talking or some kind of group. Like the automated voice that pops on when you're on hold for a long time. Your call is very important. Very important to us. Exactly.
0: Then later on, it says, you know, uh, love, uh, what is it? Love is the hardest. Thing to do, um, well, we're already later, we're already forgetting the exact wording. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I'll, I'm just flipping through the the story and reading these utterances. So rest in place, pass through in good time. So word hmm. of encouragement. Don't think for yourselves; we can think for you. Deaths are permissible when there is no hope. Hmm. The solution is elsewhere. Think freedom and be free. <laughs> think freedom and be free. I love that. Yeah.
1: I don't know. It sounds like Buddhism. Um, there, might, there might be something to that, or it might be bullshit. These utterances are so beautifully crafted. Yeah, it's just like exactly. to be, I wish, God, I wish I had literary ability like that to craft a perfect sentence hovering on the edge between profundity and vacuity.
0: Yeah, I know. And this is what this story is about. This is why you're absolutely right, I think, to think that this deserves a place in the canon of weird literature. Because it is confronting us with a perfect symbol of the weird as such, you know, yep. and of and of, of a character trying to wrestle. And what I love about this character is his devotion to the gate, right? Because he was one of the first to stop and start the wait. His devotion to it. So a very strong religious impulse in this character. Indeed, a, a feeling and a yearning for transcendence, and yet also a very strong attachment to the things of this world, such that. At the end, when the gate finally opens up after Gigi has died and he is now called, he, it's his turn to go through, he can't leave his stuff behind. He starts grabbing stuff. And his new friend, whom is, who's referred to only as the neighbor in the narrative, is telling him, you won't be needing that stuff where we're going. He's like, oh, I'll just take a few things, right?
1: Which he instantly so, drops anyway because there's, he can't hold on to it and it gets crunched underfoot. The throng
0: of people. Yeah, he ends up losing. It's a wonderful ending. We'll get to it. But yeah. Um,
1: Oh yeah, such a great ending.
0: And the weirding effect in this story goes way beyond simply the figure of the gate. For instance, there's a really interesting exploration of the images of light and darkness in the play. Uh, in the play, in the story. Well, the story's called Dark Neighborhood. And this is a reference to an area or a set of areas that we actually don't get to see in the story. Towards the end, the narrator makes friends with someone he just calls the neighbor. So it's this guy with three teeth who's living next door. And this guy helps him take care of Gigi as she's dying. So they grow quite close during that time. And this guy is different. He's a traveler. He's, he's um, the neighbor, has explored the vast encampment and has seen things. And he's actually even made a map of the territories. Um, this is the narrator talking about this. Quote, he shows me a piece of paper, a line twisting through a valley of little stars, dotted over the whole thing, except in certain patches. A map, he says. What are these stars, I say? He says that they're the lights of people. And there are no people here? I point at the empty patches. Yes, there are people, he says, but those neighborhoods are dark. No lights there? No light to see. Black? Deeper than black, he says. Impossible to avoid them. You only know you're in one when it's dark, forward, sideways, and back. And the people wait in the dark? Their voices descend on you, he says, his eyes two lumps of coal. A sound like cacophony of beetles crawling over each other, clicking armors, exoskeletons. But listen careful, and you'll hear that it's the echoes of their thoughts. It's too easy to follow a thought deeper, deep into darkness. I was lost a long time. I could sell them torches, batteries, and candles, says the narrator. No point. No bodies, heads or torsos, only the glinting flash of teeth and eyes. Illusions. Their thoughts, only thoughts. When I ran, I touched nobody, and nobody touched me. Only the thoughts that followed me out. He sucks his thumb. What do you make of that? I love that part. It is so deeply... Eldritch, right? Mysterious. This, this strange and disturbing moment of real sheer horror. I'm picturing something like some of the, I guess, some of the rings of hell in Dante, where all that you have is, or limbo or something, where all what, people exist only in the form of their discarded thoughts swirling in this vast maelstrom of darkness. It's just
1: like, really like effective. They're, like they're dried husks of thoughts clicking against one another as they whirl together in these idle pinwheels. Like the shades of the dead in, in ancient mythology, in Greek mythology, Or right? the, clicking, just... the clicking and rustling of insects in that opening scene from David Lynch's Blue Velvet.
0: But, but all this by way of introducing the theme of light and darkness. So there is a sense in which, once I finish the story, I thought, well, I think, why is the story called Dark
1: Neighborhood? We never get to see one of these dark neighborhoods that the neighbor is describing. On the contrary, everything is like flood lit with the the acid lemonade of this intense light.
0: Yeah, the intense floodlights. But as you read in the beginning, he says, the narrator himself says, There are floodlights high above us, illuminated both day and night, erase the moon to intensify the sun. No child born here will ever know the moon waxing or its smile that wanes to a slither of silver. New moon, the cold half moon. To live in a world filled with light is like being slowly erased no longer knowing down or up, yes or no day or true night light upon light is darkness. In other words, the sheer overabundance of artificial light in this place, maybe once we've made that dialectical leap that equates that much light with darkness, we may have been in such a dark neighborhood the whole time. And the text of the story may be precisely Mm. these disembodied
1: thoughts swirling in the maelstrom.
0: (laughs) Nice.
1: Huh. I had not considered that possibility. It's a creative misreading, probably, but. (laughs) It's a marvelous episode, though, because the whole setup of the story is obviously very strange. But this is a little, a little Baroque aria of strangeness within the strange. Yeah. A little sudden intensification of weirdness within the weird. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because, you know, the narrator is still trying to hold on to what neighbor is saying in terms of what he knows, the known world. I mean, it's a strange world, this waiting world, this kind of post-apocalyptic world. But within it, it's a world also of safety pins and applicators and infant formula and porno mags and all the million and one other things that he sells. And so immediately when he hears about these dark neighborhoods, he's like, oh, I could sell them batteries and flashlights. I could sell them candles and matches. And immediately a neighbor is like, no, 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 it's not that kind of darkness. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, he doesn't say that, but that's, you know, and then we ask, well, what kind of darkness is it? And we get instead this beautiful poetry about the clicking of beetles' armor and, and so on. Mm-hmm. And what is that? And I love... Substantial darkness. Yeah. Darkness made flesh, which is something we've talked about. We we talked about it on the Poe episode and the... um, uh, Tanizaki? Tanizaki episode. Yeah. Darkness is a positive quality of something that seeds itself within this world. Yeah. A darkness within the darkness.
0: It's the abolition of one of the big conceits, let's say, of a... Well, let's say a Christian idea of darkness, which is the darkness is simply the negation of light. The doctrine of privatio boni, Mm. you know, that we get through St. Augustine and others, is that evil, darkness, chaos, you know, all that we associated with the night, with what we don't want to be the case, is actually simply the negation of the good. The good is being. So darkness is non-being. Darkness is simply the absence of light. And that's actually physically true, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, it's physically true. But in a dream, when you're dreaming... The darkness and the light in your dreams exist on a level with one another. The shadows in your dream are not caused by the lack of <laughs> by by something obscuring the source of your dream light. It's simply just pure shadow. Oh, that's such and a so great to, idea. to to be restored to the imaginal is to be restored to a kind of manichaeism of light and dark. And another thing I've just noticed is that at the very end when he finally does go through the gate, and I know that you have great things to say about that. What he sees through the gate are his own eyes, right? The narrator, he sees his own eyes looking back at him. And that's precisely what uh, the neighbor says you can see in the dark neighborhood is the eyes and teeth of people. Hmm. So is he entering that darkness at the very end? Is that what we're being told? I don't know. It's, hmm. it's. I don't want to overinterpret the story because it works without being interpreted like yes. a dream does. Yes.
1: You know? <laughs> yeah. And indeed, that was one thing that we talked about before because- You asked me, well, so what do you make of the the ending? So the ending, if I just tell you what it is, it sounds anticlimactic and flat, but you have to read it because this is not about content, about things that are abstractable from the poetic form of the writing. The effect of the ending is powerful because it is a function of the writing. But stated flatly and therefore quite misleadingly, what happens is that he passes through the gate in this crush of people so tight packed is his feet are almost lifted off the ground. He drops the stuff that he vainly grabbed on his way out, giving up. I mean, for one thing, he has no choice in the matter. And for another thing, it's obvious that where he's going, it's some completely different state of existence to which all of the crap that we see enumerated in that opening paragraph is completely irrelevant. But then when he gets to the other side, all he sees are his own eyes staring back at him. Mm-hmm. And if I were asked, as you did ask me in the earlier recording of this show, what do you make of that? What do you think's going on there? I have to punt on that for the same reason that I tend to punt on dream interpretation. And I, I kind of find myself echoing James Hillman. And we talked about Hillman's dream in the underworld in one of our earlier yes. episodes and Hillman's like, the big problem that psychotherapy has always had with dreams is it wants to instrumentalize them. It wants to instrumentalize their meanings. It wants to say what they mean and then find a use to which those meanings can be put. And he's like, but the thing is that that completely abolishes the dream world because the dream world doesn't exist for the sake of the day world. The dream world just is. Its meanings just are. The way to interpret a dream is not through translating it into some other perhaps therapeutic language, but simply to tell the story, to be close to the story, to the atmosphere. It sort of reminds me of something George Steiner imagines in his book, Real Presences, of a world in which interpretation of art is abolished. Imagine a world in which the only response to an artwork would be another artwork. and Which is-, is what
0: Real criticism is, I think. I like The, best, the best criticism
1: yes, is that. I right. strongly agree. Very yeah. strongly agree. Someone like Dave Hickey, for example. But uh, as a result, you know, what is my response to that ending is not my own interpretation, but another artwork, which is H.P. Lovecraft's Neolothetap. Mm. But before I go there, I'm going to leave that as a promissory note to be followed up in a few minutes. I want to talk a little bit about one last thing to sort of set the seal on what I was saying earlier about what it is that makes this story weird. It's in the nature of a a crisis. Something happens and as a result, we have something that resembles a, a refugee camp of a sort that's familiar to us from watching the news. But it's the nature of that emergency that pushes this story, the whole premise of the story, never mind the little arias of weirdness within it. Uh, that pushes the entire territory of the story into the weird is the nature of that crisis, which is this invincibly ambiguous thing, the gate, right? Clive Barker can be quoted here. In Hellbound
0: Heart, he writes of the Cenobites that they were perfectly flawlessly ambiguous.
1: Yes. I think that's right. Yeah. And this is exactly true of the gate, right? Also, exactly true of the UFO phenomenon. And in the last week, I. Unearthed an article that really impressed me. This is, I don't know, about 15 years old. This is an essay by a fellow named Alexander Went, who is not a UFO guy for the most part. He's an international relations guy. Went and another author, Raymond Duval, wrote an essay titled "Sovereignty in the UFO," appearing in the journal Political Theory in 2008. And like I said, Went, although I think there's a TEDx talk with him arguing that there should be scientific study of UFOs for which the Tad Corporation slapped a kind of a sciency warning label All on right. it this contains unverified <laughs> statements inimical to science the
0: index you know the uh, the index of prohibited books of the secular <laughs> world we have that now it's <laughs> like disinformation misinformation unverified no, theories be warned <laughs>
1: Yeah. So in any event, Wen is not primarily a UFO guy. And what's interesting about this essay appearing in a journal that is about international relations and politics and not about UFOs is that UFOs become kind of a test case, or if depending on your temper, either a test case or an imaginary thought experiment, testing the limits of sovereignty in the modern state. And the fundamental point that Wendt and Duval make is that the modern concept of the state assumes sovereignty only for human beings. This is quite different from older forms of political association in which gods and diamonds are considered part of the polis. We've talked about this before. Essential parts of the polis. Yeah. 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 Or, you know, in a lot of first nations civilizations where animals are part of the polis. Mm-hmm. Where your decisions about where to live, where to fish and hunt, uh, etc., are to some extent done in consultation with the bear yeah. and the trout and so on. Yeah. There's a radical other against whom and before whom
0: we make claims of sovereignty. That you can't do that in a secular modern nation state.
1: Right. Yeah. We move from a concept of like, we are equal under God, or at least we're not equal. But, you know, nevertheless, our hierarchical distinctions are arrayed for our benefit. But before God, we're all just people. Right. We're all just Christians or non-Christians, in which case we're, you know, the waste of society. But not to get into (laughs) that. But um, the idea of the modern state, however, prepares an enclosure for God, where God can go. So we say, oh, well, there are religious people, like I live here in southern Indiana, there's a lot of evangelical belief in these parts. And so, you know, if you were a politician, you would be like, well, we have to take the views of those constituents seriously. And that's part of a human polity, right? So God becomes basically relevant for the purposes of how this proposed entity moves human actors, but it's the human actors that belong to the polity. And this is true even in theocratic regimes. So God's still
0: there, but God is like the Batman symbol on the clouds. You you know that there's a projector somewhere, there's a spotlight somewhere, and it's a human spotlight projecting it. You you don't need to, you don't see it as Charlemagne did, which is a light coming from the heaven, right? Right,
1: exactly. Oh, that's an excellent, excellent metaphor. So... The thing about UFOs, Wendt points out, is that they absolutely challenge this notion of sovereignty. Because here are beings that we can't do what we do with animals and God. We might say, sure, animals are intelligent, animals are sentient, but even if we decide we're going to agree with Peter Singer and assign them a voice in our polity, It's human beings that decide that, right?
0: Yeah. Again, you're reiterating the sovereignty of the human by saying humans must give these rights to animals. You're still maintaining the absolute
1: sovereignty of the human. But UFOs are these weird centaur-like creatures that are part machine and part god. They are godlike insofar as whatever intelligence they may be taken to represent is clearly one we cannot command. Mm -hmm. We could decide we're going to assign a meaning and a purpose and a kind of a place in our polity for UFOs. But if UFOs or whatever is behind them decide otherwise, there's fuck all we can do about it. We're not sovereign over them at all. Our notion of sovereignty is revealed to be a child's game when something truly other and outside the human and something that will not be put in a little pen of our making appears. And so the key quote from this essay, quote, modern systems of rule are able to command exceptional loyalty and resources from their subjects on the shared assumption that the only potential sovereigns are human. Imagine a counterfactual world in which God visibly materialized. To whom would people give their loyalty? And could states in their present form survive were such a question politically salient? Anything that challenged anthropocentric sovereignty, it seems, would challenge the foundations of modern rule. Mm. This is how the UFOs, just the mere existence of the enigma is deeply destabilizing. And... You know, one question I've been thinking a lot about is what happens when UFOs are acknowledged? Because, you know, so much energy has gone into denying the very existence of UFOs. And we are now at a historically original point. In fact, today, there is a UAP hearing in Washington. In the Senate, right? So these are high times. This kind of thing did not used to happen. Certainly didn't happen in the 80s and 90s when we were coming up. There are voices in the government that are still maintaining the UFO denialism position. But there are now many voices from various places in the U.S. government that are saying there is something there, not necessarily saying that anybody knows what it is, but something there. And why would you deny that? For years, I always thought the idea of like, well, if, you, if we just acknowledge UFOs existed, there'd be chaos. I never believed that mean shit we went through covid which completely upended everything and we still managed more or less to hold our shit together all exceptions do yes all
0: things considered
1: (laughs) but what would happen if the idea that these things exist that they are technologically inconceivably more advanced than anything we have if just that much not only were publicly affirmed but if that thought really penetrated to our consciousness which as i argued in our ufo show has not happened at all it's very possible for people to ignore all of the revelations from 2017 onwards but that's an interesting argument right there the sovereignty the very idea of there being a society an anthropocentric society in which we get to call the shots that idea being dealt a fatal blow What happens then? Well, I don't know what happens then. Really, none of us do. But it's an interesting question. And my point is, getting back to Dark Neighborhood, the weirdness of the situation is precisely that situation, that we have an intelligence entirely outside the anthropocentric construal. And we know nothing about it as a profoundly alien and inscrutable presence. But the mere fact of its unquestioned presence forms an entire new society around it, a post scarcity anarchism of a nightmarish kind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I love it. Yeah. And so the whole social basis of this story is always already deeply strange because it's already happening in that space outside the anthropocentric construal. Oh, love it, love it! Yes, it's this is strangely,
0: strangely apropos for me because last night I did the last of my Macbeth lectures on your learning, ah. and, and much of it dealt with the political dimension of the tragedy of Macbeth, which deals, I think, precisely with this question. Because what happens in early modernity, and you really sense this when you look into the doctrine of the divine right of kings as expressed and formulated by someone like James I, right, of England. Uh, who was formerly James VI of Scotland, became James I in the early 17th century. And what he does is he must promulgate a doctrine which was taken for granted in the Middle Ages, namely that the king is there by divine right. Now, to medieval people, the king was there by divine right, but so was the flower growing in your garden and the raindrops falling from the sky. Everything was there by divine right. That starts to change after the Reformation. We've got the rise of natural science. We've got different ways of looking at the world. And so the divine right of kings must be now conceptualized and expressed by James I. And that's precisely the problem. Who can express this right? James I. Why should we listen to James I's ideas? Because he has the divine right. There's a there's a fundamental equivocation in the fact it's like when He-Man says, I have the power, he's also saying, I didn't have the power till I said I have the power. And now I have the power. (laughs) But in saying it, you're also saying you didn't have it. So it's equivocal. James I must say he has the divine right, but that claim is only legitimate if he already has it. And that's exactly the problem of Macbeth. When Macbeth kills King Duncan, he doesn't just kill the man who happens to be king. He kills kingship. Why? Because the medieval king, Duncan is a medieval king. The medieval king existed only as the center of a network, a latticework of oaths of fealty. That are only as real as the fealty, right? Fealty being the Pledge of Allegiance. Once Macbeth kills his own king, whom he just defended in war, he kills fealty. He kills kingship. And so he doesn't ah, feel like he's king. So he has to... I dig. He has to proclaim his kingship by murdering Banquo, by eliminating every trace of the murder, by becoming a tyrant, he must equivocate himself into a new form of kingship, which takes the form of a modern tyrant, of a modern tyranny. And I think that's a big Uh part of what Macbeth is about. So- Ha,
1: that's interesting.
0: But all this to say, the state of exception we enter into with Macbeth, i.e. modernity, the secular yeah. state the extreme it was exclusive humanism that taylor details in his work mm, right. that's been that's now 500 years old almost that state of exception is a great waiting and i think that the ufo if nothing else <laughs> is the symbol of that which we are waiting for we are oh waiting God. for that... something to make us to legitimize our sovereignty but that can only be something whose sovereignty is equal or superior to ours. We
1: really are waiting for the miracle. (laughs) Okay, you just served me up a marvelous segue to the place I wanted to go, which is near Lothatap. Oh, yeah. We stuck a pin in that. So saying that Macbeth doesn't just kill the king, he kills kingship is quite interesting. It reminds me of Lovecraft because... You know, something that Connor said in our last show on Hellraiser, Hellbound Heart, he's like, you know, horror, it's not that exciting if all we're doing is killing people. Like, oh, is it going to be extra scary that something is going to happen to you anyway? Like, you know, your individual death happens at the hands of a monster or a serial killer. Yeah, maybe a little more scary, but it's still a somewhat earthbound scariness. But what about killing not just a person, but killing humanity? Not just... Talking about, like, you know, the extermination of the human race. Well, that, that's pretty scary. We've talked about that recently as well in Last and First mm-hmm. Men. But what about killing, like, the idea of the human, the essence of the human? Oh, that's what Lovecraft specializes in. Human beings who are mutated out of all recognition, who turn into the gibbering, shuffling things of the other world. The gesture in a Lovecraft story is a vector pointed out of the human and towards, as they always said in the old professional wrestling circuit days, parts unknown. (laughs) That was always one of my favorite things when, when, uh, like, um, oh, who is the wrestler they always did that with in the Northern Ontario circuit? Oh, Um, geez. I can't help you there. Oh, Abdullah the Butcher. I remember there would be from parts unknown. So anyway, uh, so, you know, killing not just the king, but kingship, killing not just the human, but humanity. This is what happens in Neolothotep. And Neolothotep was apparently a dream that Lovecraft had. And that he wrote it all down upon waking. And it's an extraordinary piece. Of all of the things of Lovecraft I've read, it is still my favorite, even though in many ways it's atypical. It's so short, it's a sketch, hardly a story at all. It shares with Onwamezi's Dark Neighborhood that characteristic I discussed at the beginning, that sort of operatic characteristic of the thickening of prose into poetry. The intensification, you know, there are some parts of this very short story, Neonolothotep, they're just a story telling you a setting and what happens and so on. And then especially as we follow that vector out of the human at the very end, the last two paragraphs, it thickens into a kind of dread poetry. It's marvelous. But formal considerations aside, what happens at the end of Dark Neighborhood expressively feels to me very much like what happens at the end of Neolothotep. So what happens in Neolothotep is that a guy tells us about, like, he's inhabiting a strange time of time that, as you pointed out in our episode on Neolothotep, feels much like our own, where, you know, like the weather has changed, the order of the seasons feels disrupted, like everything feels out of joint in the world, and everybody feels like they're waiting for something. And on this stage, the enigmatic figure of Neolothetep appears as a kind of charismatic preacher. A traveling scientist, a traveling magician. I, I don't know. It's unclear. Someone like you'd imagine Tesla yes. or, uh, you know, some kind of worker of wonders. And they're presented as scientific wonders. But as the story goes along, you start realizing there's some kind of deep strain of madness woven through Neolothetep's lectures that infects his listeners. And so there's this strange, contagious madness that Neolothotep seems to be like um, the the host. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like it's a pathogen and he's like a typhoid Mary going around the country spreading this disease. Anyway, so that's the setup for the ending of the story where the narrator and all the other people exit the lecture hall. And find a world transformed and for a while try to act like this is still their world, but it isn't. And that exit into the unknowable, that gesture we also find in Dark Neighborhood. So I'm gonna read the end of Dark Neighborhood, and then I'm gonna read the end of Neil tab Or perhaps you would like to read one of these so that people don't have to hear my voice droning on and on. Do you want to read the end of Dark yeah, Neighborhood? I'll read the end of Dark Neighborhood and then you can read.
0: I hook the bag over my shoulder and move urgent, like pulled by a thread tied to my tooth. The bag slips from me, but crowds' momentum lifts me, moving me forwards, hear my things crunch underfoot, and then as a distant rattle. The wind will enjoy rattling through those objects now we're gone. A bottleneck at the gate squeezes the gathering crowd to a crush, shoulder to shoulder, my toes just about on the ground. And through my body rushes the heat generated by all of us pushed together. In front, I see the gate wide open, deep cavern of mouth, and no elation on the approach, as I've always expected, because on the other side of the gate I see nothing but my own eyes staring back. The advance is endless, as if the whole duration of our suffering here is replayed, moment by moment, each step we take. I, embedded in mass of people, legs and arms bonded, twisted together, bodies and faces lost to the want, except for the eyes. And I wonder if anyone else can see this, if they too can see their own eyes staring back at them from beyond the gate. Gee, I'm a fool, I say to myself, but I don't say it aloud. Compelled, I keep marching forwards on my toes in this endless advance that goes nowhere, and I ask myself why we can't turn around, why we never turned around to look for some other way through, why us starved people have been waiting, wanting hopeless wants, and are now running towards them in the night as a sea of heads. Silence has fallen on us, no cries of bliss. All is covered in a layer of hush as we dampen down, a fog hanging low. And I look around at the other people, at the backs and sides of their heads, while they are staring straight ahead, only ahead. That's how it ends marvelous i feel it now that i've read it out loud i really feel what you're seeing here the kind of echo the kind of resonance that you're feeling with the lovecraft story
1: yeah yeah which i'm going to read rather than say anything about that ending because i do rather like the idea that the proper response to a truly original artistic stroke is another truly original artistic stroke It was in the hot autumn that I went through the night with the restless crowds to see Neolothotep, through the stifling night and up the endless stairs into the choking room. And it describes the wonders that Neolothotep shows the audience. And then he says, And when I, who was colder and more scientific than the rest, mumbled a trembling protest about imposture and static electricity, Neolothotep drove us all out, down the dizzy stairs into the damp, hot, deserted midnight streets. I screamed aloud that I was not afraid, that I never could be afraid, and others screamed with me for solace. We swore to one another that the city was exactly the same and still alive, and when the electric lights began to fade we cursed the company, over and over again, and laughed at the queer faces we made. I believe we felt something coming down from the greenish moon, for when we began to depend on its light we drifted into curious, involuntary marching formations and seemed to know our destinations, though we dared not think of them. Once we looked at the pavement and found the blocks loose and displaced by grass, with scarce a line of rusted metal to show where the tramways had run. And again we saw a tramcar, lone, windowless, dilapidated, and almost on its side. When we gazed around the horizon we could not find the third tower by the river, and noticed that the silhouette of the second tower was ragged at the top. Then we split up into narrow columns, each of which seemed drawn in a different direction. One disappeared in a narrow alley to the left, leaving only the echo of a shocking moan. Another filed down a weed-choked subway entrance, howling with a laughter that was mad. My own column was sucked toward the open country, and presently I felt a chill which was not of the hot autumn. For as we stalked out on the dark moor, we beheld around us the hellish moon glitter of evil snows, trackless, inexplicable snows, swept asunder in one direction only, where lay a gulf all the blacker for its glittering walls. The column seemed very thin indeed as it plodded dreamily into the gulf. I lingered behind, for the black rift in the green-litten snow was frightful, and I thought I had heard the reverberations of a disquieting wail as my companions vanished. But my power to linger was slight. As if beckoned by those who had gone before, I half-floated between the titanic snowdrifts, quivering and afraid, into the sightless vortex of the unimaginable.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favourite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.